So I go in and I stand there and I am frozen in that moment. And I am standing over an infant, a dead infant. And he was singing the baby a lullaby as he was preparing the remains post-autopsy to be shipped back to the United States. And I just profoundly remember looking at that hymn and I said, might I ask what you do profession-wise? And he said, I'm a funeral director. Hello and welcome to All the Above. I'm James Brown. Thanks for joining me. You can check out my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Paid subscribers get episodes early and other perks. It's there I make podcasts about the things that unite us and the people obsessed with them. It's in that spirit that I present to you a series called Completing the Circle. It's about death and dying and the people who embrace it every day. Like today's guest, Genevieve Kini Vasquez. She spent her whole life wanting to work in these fields, and she has. As a funeral director, an army medical officer, a palliative nurse, and most recently as president and CEO of the National Museum of Funeral History. She was fascinating, revealing, and eloquent. Everything you can ask for in a guest. Find me on any platform at James Brown TV and tell me what you think. You can also email me at jamesbrowntv at gmail.com. And now... My conversation with Genevieve Kini Vasquez. I'd I'd like to pivot to the military aspects because that's that's what you chose after after high school, I presume. So interesting enough, when I went to high, when I was in high school, you know, you get to go to your career counselors, and you go and mm-hmm. sit down and cover concerts, like all happy and bubbly. Oh, so what do you want to do in life? And I told them I want to work with dead people, <laughs> and they were like not sure what profession that will be, but let me look into it and get back to you. (laughs) And I kept getting that answer and I was so, I felt so lost. I was like, why is it so hard for people to tell me how to work with dead people? And why do they look at me crooked when I say that's what I want to do? And so when I was finishing, when I was in my senior year, they said, well, you most well, when I interviewed the coroner, he let me know that that was an elected position. Most counties elect the coroners. And I said, OK, so I put that in my hat as as knowledge moving forward. And then um, I learned that a forensic pathologist is a medical doctor. So then that means that I had to go to medical school and an elected official usually came out of a house of lawyers so they were like well you either can go the law route or you can go medical route to work with the dead and I was like okay well unfortunately I mean it's fortunate I mean my kids are amazing I had um in high school I was a pregnant teenager in high school and I graduated with all honors with my child I was 16 and pregnant and um and 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 they're they're thriving today I'm thriving today um, but I didn't have money to go to school, basically. And they're telling me I had to go law route or medical route. And we both know that that's a hefty tuition bill. 
And so at that time, my option was to go into the military so I could have money to pay for school so I could eventually reach my dream of working with the dead. And that's what I did. I joined the military for school. And I went in the military um, unknowing that it would lead me to, um, you know, a, a, a completion of my very first circle from when I was seven. Uh, so fast forward, I'm, I'm, I'm six years into my career. I choose to get stationed overseas. I go to Germany uh, with my children. We're living in Europe. And I'm working at a clinic there. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, um, we had a soldier who died of an alcohol overdose. And people in the clinic are like, I'm not going to go. Oh, don't, don't pick me. Because you know, in the military, they pick you. It's a hey, you detail. you got to go. There's no, you know, you can't get out of it. They pick you, you're gone, right? <laughs> so I noticed that there was a lot of people that were like shying away and not wanting to get picked please don't pick me. And so I raised my hand and said, pick me. I want to do it, you know? So I got to go on my um, my very first death call uh, in the military. Um, and again, now I was getting to see my first dead body in person. And it was, you know, because I chose to do this route of going in the military for education, unbeknownst to me, it was going to lead me into more of what I was hoping to achieve in life. And um, took care of that body, learned a lot uh, of, uh, of crime scene investigation and all that cool stuff. I was like a sponge. I, I literally came home exhausted because I was just like taking in everything I could, everything I could. I was just fascinated in that moment. I was like, this is my element. This is where I can really thrive uh, and really apply myself. And then the next death that happened unfortunately was a murder-suicide uh, where a husband a soldier um, had killed his wife and then himself and it happened just closely to where we lived and um, and there was a lot of processes involved and I went out to my commander and I said if I really am going to create what we call the death reaction team acronym is called DIRT rightfully so because we love acronyms in the military DRT and I said, I'm going to create the death reaction team because there's too many holes to do this right. And so I said, if I'm really going to put this, this, this standard operating procedure, an SOP, another acronym, a standing operating procedure for people who come behind me on how to deal with a death in our community, I need to follow these bodies all the way through the process from the time they get picked up to the time they go to launch stool to the time they get ready to be shipped back to the United States. And so he granted me the time to to follow these bodies, basically, so that I could learn the processes. And so I went with, um, I went up to Landstuhl, um, which is in Germany, which is the main regional center for processing all uh, remains of soldiers that die in theater or combat. They all go through Landstuhl. And so I was up there. And I remember with both of the bodies are in the autopsy room. And now I'm getting to see my first autopsy in my life. And I am just scared, excited. I, I, I had just all these emotions going through me. And I'm completely dressed up in my PPE 
which is your face shield, your gown, your gloves, your goggles, your shoe covers, everything. And I'm standing at the table and I'm getting ready to witness the beginning of the autopsy. And all of a sudden I'm feeling dizzy and I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I, I kind of looked at the sergeant and I was like, can I go to the restroom? And he was like, oh no, we're getting started. Restroom break already happened. And I was like, I panicked. I was like, oh no. And he's like, oh no, I'm just kidding. You can go to the bathroom. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to me, I'm standing right by the drain where all of the embalming chemicals and fluids go down into. So the fumes is what was getting me dizzy, you know, not to mention I was, man, my heart was racing. So my oxygen level was being exchanged faster and I was wearing a mask and all this garb that's hard to breathe in anyway. So there was a lot of, you know, stuff going on that led to me being dizzy. So I go into the bathroom. I'm sitting on the toilet and I'm talking to myself. I'm not really going to the bathroom, by the way, listeners. I'm not. I'm just sitting on the toilet with it closed, trying to regain my composure. And I literally put my head between my knees and I just told myself, breathe, Genevieve, breathe. This is what you've been waited for your entire life since you were seven. And you're here in this moment and you want to pass out? Really? put yourself together right now, woman, and get back out there. So I pulled myself together. I walk out of the restroom and I get ready to go through the double doors again, where they're doing the um, autopsy. And I got a little woozy again. I said, okay, no, not yet, not yet. Cause you can't get out the second time. So I go and I sit on this chair and there's an admin person on a typewriter typing. And I'm still just trying to regain myself, pull myself together and get my composure and get that dizzy feeling to pass. And there's another set of double doors. And interesting enough, I heard this very soft voice on the other side of those doors. And it was singing this beautiful song. And it was like, it was, it was just music to the ears and it was calming. And I thought to myself, wow, what is going on in that room? Because I know what's going on in this room. It's an autopsy of a husband and a wife, but what's going on in this room that has this beautiful melody coming out of it? And for some reason, have still to this day don't know that reason, the doors open and this really short old man pops his head out. And he sees me sitting there and he's got his apron on, his plastic apron, and he looks at me and goes, would you like to come in? This man does not even know I'm sitting there. But he pops his head out and he was singing a lullaby uh, uh, earlier, this this beautiful song. And 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 I was like, sure, I'll go in. Okay, this man, I mean, I'm not going to say no. I mean, that's rude, right? So I go in and I stand there and I am frozen in that moment. And I am standing over an infant, a dead infant. And he was singing the baby a lullaby as he was preparing the remains post-autopsy to be shipped back to the United States. And I just profoundly remember looking up at him and I said, might I ask what you do profession-wise? And he said, I'm a funeral director. And in that moment, not only was I finally seeing 
this infant that I have been searching for since I was seven, I realized in that moment what my profession was going to be. And everything just came full circle in that moment. And it has led me to where I am today. And, and, and I just know that the, that the wheels of fate, the, 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 my profound interest and patience along the way has really navigated uh, my career, my profession, my ability to, to, to have passion in what I do. Well, the passion is so clear. There's a, a couple of questions that these really interesting anecdotes bring up. Did you feel a kinship with this man? Are uh, you talking about the, the funeral director that was taking care of the baby? Yes. I felt a identification with him. Like, you are what I want to be. Because interesting enough, in the other room was the forensic pathologist who I thought I wanted to be. And mm -hmm. he, you know, after being with the baby and that and the funeral director, I went back into the other room to to finish what I started, which was to be there to witness autopsy and to learn. Um, and he did. He was very educational to me and, and, and was very um, more in depth in the autopsy process for me to learn. And I it was as if I was able to cross compare both professions at the exact same time. And so you call it a kinship. I call it an identity. And in finding that identity, I would think that it would be relieving for someone who went through what you described as, you know, someone who couldn't talk about this thing that they're profoundly intrigued with to finally find people like them who were interested in the things that they were interested in and, and, and could geek out with a, a bunch of other people who were into working with and around dead bodies. Exactly. And you do not, you hit the nail on the head so like forcefully just now because you don't know what it's like to be existing in an environment and being so passionate about something but not able to talk about it with everybody because it's just a, it's a niche it but it happens to everybody so why is it a niche it's a niche because as you said no one wants to talk about exactly. it exactly or deal with it or think about it uh, it's it's touched me a lot as it's touched everybody but personally you know like like I, I, I have three of my siblings have died pretty young uh, not as young as, as yours but it's one of those things that you you don't speak of out of context correct yeah yeah <laughs> you don't you don't just you don't sit down at dinner and then start talking about it Right. It, it becomes yeah. like a, um, a conversation killer. Right. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, speaking to that, it, you know, we talked about the dinner, you know, my kids, um, I think um, 
one night I had to tend to, this was still when I was in the military, I had to unfortunately attend to a SIDS death, uh, sudden in infant death syndrome. And so I didn't go home till really late at night, like two or three o'clock in the morning. And my kids were like, mommy, mommy, you know, and they're all young. Mommy, why were you up so late? Why didn't you get home until real late? You weren't home to tuck us into bed. And I was like, ooh, how do I explain this one to the children? And I thought, you know what? Just explain it and be real. And I told them, I said, you know, somebody's baby unfortunately died and mommy had to be there to help them. And it was in that moment that my children wanted to learn more and understand more about death. So death was a topic for us at the dinner table, you know, and and it, my children grew up around death. And, 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 and sometimes I thought, well, I wonder if they're going to think my children are weird if, you know, something were to happen and they don't grieve the way most people grieve, but it's because they've been exposed through my keen interest and their interest because of what I was interested in and my profession. That's a unique home. Did they pick up any of your habits? Um, oh, one of them picked up my military habit, <laughs> but not death. <laughs> None of them picked up the death habit. They picked up other habits, uh, you know, motherhood, uh, education, military. Um, but no, none of them went into any of the death care business at all. I mean, I don't, I don't run a business per se. Like most people think, oh, you're a funeral director, you're you run a funeral home. But as a funeral director, there are so many other avenues and for your profession than just running a funeral home. How old were you when you left the military? Oh, well, let's see. Then on 04, so I was, oh my goodness, you think it's been 18 years. I, I left in 04, so I want to say I was, was I 34? Yeah, it was, yeah, third, 34. Around 30, around 34, 36. Yeah. I was in my mid-30s. So you were a career officer? No, I only served 12 years. I was a non-commissioned officer. Okay. Yeah. But I only served... Non-commissioned. Yeah, non-commissioned officer. And I served 12 years. I think it would be pretty difficult to be in the military with kids a as an officer yourself. It it was, but you learned to navigate it. I mean, everybody in the military, practically, I'm not everybody, but there's a lot of kids in the military. A lot of children are born in the military. Um, and I have four children. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of resources there that that help. Um, I think it's the hard, the hardest part on the kids is the deployments uh, and the, the assignments that take you away from home. That's the hardest part. But at the same time, it does build a sense of resilience in, in, in your children. Um, I was actually complimented by um, my two older kids when we came back from Europe. Um, their teachers had complimented me and said that they could tell that my children uh, had come from a military family as well as, a, you know, a, that they had been um, exposed to, to other things in life that has opened up their abilities to, to see the world differently. I'm also thinking, you know, also dovetailing it with death. You were there during wartime, both throughout the 90s. I mean, there were a lot of bombing. Um, Bosnia comes to mind. Um, um, uh, then, of course, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq. 
Um, you, it sounds uh, from your description. I think uh, the Iraq War was right around the time where you were ending your time. At least the second Iraq War. I don't know if you were there for the first. I had just joined during the first, and so I, I, I was. Uh, it had. It, it was the very, very short war, and so within uh, eight months, I was um, already joining. But the war had ended because it was so short. So I caught the tail end of uh, of it when I joined, and then I um, served during many of the conflicts, like the Bosnia conflict, the Kosovo conflict. Um, the, so many of the conflicts, I was there, and then of course, nine eleven um, and the huge uh, war that broke out and is still going on today. Um, but the, um, you know, my children had always been knowing that part of our mission could get us killed. You know that 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 you know there are times when the soldiers go away and they don't get to come home. They don't ever come home. Um, well, they come home, but not alive. Um, and so when it came time for me to get out, that was a really hard conversation that I had with my children because I knew that my next duty station was definitely going to be taking me downrange, uh, which with if I did not have my children, I definitely would have been you know, ready to go at a moment's notice, um, as I always was and had to be. Um, but having four children and seeing the effects that it was having on their friends, um, I was, um, the war uh, had already been in its third year when I was getting ready to get out. And children of 15, 16 years old, uh, unfortunately, were getting pregnant. The girls were. And I have, you know, three girls and a boy. And my children are in that impressionable age of 15, 16 12 and 11 and I just had to make the hard decision that I needed to be there as their parent I needed to uh, guide them and not absent be absent of them and allow other people to raise them and then if I were to die in war they would be orphaned of their mother and I didn't want that for them were you a single mom uh, no I was not a single mom they had their stepdad um, but nonetheless um, the, my children who were not of their father, uh, their stepfather, uh, I didn't know whether he would take them on and care for them, you know, for the rest of their natural life as well. You know, I, I wasn't sure in that. So I didn't know the, the, you know, how solid that, that would be able to be maintained in my absence. And that's totally understandable. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a well of a thing to take on. And you never know. I I pry into your military background because you mentioned having multiple encounters with dead bodies in different ways. Did you have encounters with dead bodies that were came back from war? Uh, no, I never had the bodies that came back from war. Believe it or not. You can have just as much catastrophe in peacetime as you can in war. Wow. And I dealt with the ones, believe it or not, that, you know, had some excruciating, you know, death-related injuries um, just 
by the activities that they had and you know were involved in um, car accidents motorcycle accidents suicides and murderers and and unfortunate child abuse and you know stuff like that so we have our own war even in peacetime true part of me would think someone with your curiosities would be a bit you would have wanted to see that oh definitely oh yes but i i took my the, the future of my children was much more important than in than seeking out the my curiosities of caring for the soldiers um who have died in combat but believe it or not i have when i did i was going to go into the reserves um and i was working on i was almost done with my bachelor's degree and i was going to i wanted to be a mortuary affairs officer and that that was going to be but in the reserve component and i was actually lining myself up to continue that curiosity that you just spoke of uh to be a mortuary affairs officer and be able to go and care for our our, our deceased soldiers and ensure that their bodies got back to their to their loved ones um but but as in all military contracts what you sign is not always what you get so fool me once but don't fool me twice um so when i went to go sign contract to become an officer i was already in my funeral directing school and they told me that um i would need to go to ocs and finish all this stuff and i was going to try and weave it into my provisional funeral directing career and so after you finish your your schooling you have to serve a year provisional now the commissioner will grant an interruption of that provision if you get called to active duty um but i learned that i literally i went down and took my physical was just about ready to sign that paper again with the government to sign back in and I saw that they had put down 91 whiskey. And I said, why are you having down 91 whiskey, which was my old MOS? And they said, oh, because we're going to bring you in in your old MOS until you get completely trained to be a mortuary affairs officer. And I said, hmm, can't do it because I know if I sign this paper today, I will be downrange next week. Wow. So I couldn't take that gamble because I was seeing fellow students in my class at Commonwealth Institute of Funeral Services getting plucked out of class, activated and sent down range. And I, and I just, I couldn't take that gamble. Um, again, that is the whole reason why I got out. It was to ensure that my children had, you know, their mother in their life. Thanks for listening to all of the above. Let me know what you think at James Brown TV anywhere. And of course, at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. Paid subscribers can listen to more of my conversation with Genevieve now. Everyone else will hear the next part next week. I'm James Brown, and as always, be well.